Welcome to Mental Health in Focus, a platform for talking all things mental health. Expand your knowledge by joining our expert hosts as they go beyond the 101. Welcome to this fourth and final episode of Eating Disorders Beyond the Unknown. This series is produced by a partnership between the National Eating Disorders Collaboration and the Mental Health Professionals Network. We're aiming to challenge perspectives around eating disorders and provide tips and strategies for you, the listener, to better understand, recognise and respond to them. My name is Beth Shelton. I'm a psychologist who works clinically with people experiencing eating disorders and I'm also the National Director of the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. I'm co-hosting this series with my friend and colleague Belinda Caldwell who has walked the journey in a caring role for her daughter and is currently the CEO of Eating Disorders Victoria. Welcome Belinda. Thanks Beth, it's great to be here. This conversation across this whole series has just been so stimulating so far. Um, I can't believe this is the final one. Um, I've really valued exploring eating disorders through both the provider and the lived experience lens. Yes, that's exactly, I feel the same way. And across the four episodes, we're aiming to take three kind of points of knowledge to bring together the research, the lived experience, and the clinical experience and sort of wend them together to combine um, and give you the, a sort of deeper sense of what's happening with eating disorders and also start to maybe um, help you consider what your role in the system of care might be. So in previous episodes, we've addressed myths and stigma. We've explored the diagnoses of anorexia, atypical anorexia, talked about restrictive eating. We've also looked at what happens with bulimia and binge eating. And we've heard stories and been given the privilege of hearing the experience from people who've actually walked this walk and had this experience. In today's episode, we'll explore the spectrum from healthy eating to an eating disorder. Before we launch into it, we'll tell you again a little bit about ourselves. So Belinda, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became CEO of EDV? I think um, it's been such an interesting journey for me anyway. Um, so after 35 years of working in um, health, so in public health and primary um, care and sort of health change management was kind of my areas of focus. Um, in 2011, my daughter Lucy developed um, anorexia and she was hospitalised, after which we undertook family-based treatment and a range of other treatments and uh, initiatives after that. That journey, you know, was extremely challenging, somewhat traumatic for all of us in my family. Uh, it brought our family much closer together, but really with my professional hat on created a lot of questions for me about how we can do this better. So now I've had the great privilege to be able to combine my professional skills and experience with an area about which I feel extremely passionate about making some significant change in. So Eating Disorders Victoria is the statewide peak body supporting um, people in Victoria impacted by eating disorders and it's a real privilege to be able to walk with our community um, as a trusted guide. Thanks, Belinda. And just acknowledging that Belinda and I stand shoulder to shoulder, Belinda with a lived experience organisation and myself 
as directing the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, which is funded by the federal government to work towards a system of care for people with eating disorders, which is consistent, high quality and accessible. And that should be for everyone in Australia to be able to get what they need across the spectrum of care when they need it. So that's what my organisation works uh, for. My journey into this, firstly, artistic, which is kind of odd, choreographer, looking at bodies, um, working as an artistic director, looking at how people relate to their bodies is the centre of what a choreographer's sort of view of the world is. And I became very interested in how people relate to their bodies and what that, that's about. Then in midlife, I trained as a psychologist and the logical area to become involved in there was body image because that's the way the construct that psychologists use to explore body experience. And when you get involved in body image, it leads you irrevocably to eating disorders <laughs> because in psychology, we're always, I suppose, dealing with the problems and complexities that people experience in a certain area. So I became in it, um, involved in that as a clinician and have been working with people clinically um, for more than 20 years um, across the age groups and now have the privilege also of leading um, aspects of the system of care change across Australia. Fantastic. So... We decided to focus today, like take the lens out a little bit and say, what's the experience of eating? You know, we all eat. We all eat five, three, six times a day, I hope. <laughs> and um, we all do that. We all make decisions about it. We all have a relationship with our own bodies in our eating. And we live in a fairly complex social milieu in relation to those decisions. We thought it might be good to bring that out and have a think about what is normal eating What's disordered eating? And then what would we say is the kind of trigger into an eating disorder? And so to help ourselves kind of think that through a little bit. And I'm really interested in this topic because I think, you know, before Lucy became unwell, I was probably pretty clueless or had some, you know, probably pretty common ideas about what good eating was. She'd eaten um, in what I would have labelled back then a healthy way for quite a, a number of years before it really tipped over into an eating disorder. Um, but definitely there were some rules. So I just used to, you know, I, I admit it with embarrassment now, I used to call her the health freak in our family um, because she was really, you know, really physically active and, um, you know, very scornful of things like McDonald's and chocolate and things like that. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because... You know, it really caught me on the back hop once we ended up on the whole spiral, spiral of anorexia about what normal eating was. And we really, as a family, had to completely rejig what our concept of what normal eating was to get Lucy back out of this, you know. Um, so, you know, what were the markers? What were the things that we were aiming for that constitute normal eating that we could use as a framework for, um, you know, setting some milestones in her recovery journey about what we're looking for uh, what are we trying to say so um and you know it's for families uh, and for people with eating disorders you know this process often feels like you're swimming against the tide um you know with what is normal eating you know most people that you interact with will have completely different ideas about what normal eating constitutes and so um it's you know it can be quite um uh, quite a problematic element of recovery for people with an eating disorder um, how, and how society constructs normal eating. So I think we, we're not particularly literate in what normal eating is. No, and it's a, I think it's a very emotional topic as well. Mm. Like if you just, just Google anything about eating, I mean, the, 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 um, 
the views and the the polarities and the opinions it's it's it's, it's big isn't it yeah and i think even um you know, if you reflect back to episode two when Julia and Jess were talking, for listeners who haven't listened to episode two, you know, we talked with a young woman and her mother who had gone through atypical anorexia and one of the real challenges there was she was eating in a very disordered fashion but the weight meant that people were seeing that is not disordered. If she'd been, you know, underweight or emaciated, we would have seen that as really bad eating disordered behaviour um, but because she was a healthy weight it wasn't and so I think you know lots of us are not particularly literate about what all of this stuff means. So having evoked all that complexity. Sorry. And got, <laughs> no, 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 both of us are involved, you know, so, because it is kind of complex what we're living through I think in relation to eating. We're very fortunate today because we have, um, we're going to be joined by a colleague of ours and friend from Queensland, Shane Jeffries, and Shane is a an expert, I reckon, in helping us understand normal eating, kind of disordered eating and eating disorders and works across those areas and has actually made a really um, creative contribution to sort of some guiding points, I think, around what normal eating needs to look like that has helped many of us in the clinical field and parents too, I think, Belinda and individuals with eating disorders, be able to understand kind of what to head for. So um, at this point, Shane, I'd, I'd um, would like to welcome you to our little panel, our discussion and conversation here around this. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Perhaps you could start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how what you do and, you know, what brings you here. Yeah, yeah, thanks. It's so, um, it's so good to be here and having a chat with you guys. My... Um I guess my journey, I've worked in the field of eating disorders and, and disordered eating and have done for about 25 years and my, my way into it was interesting in a way. I went in to study dietetics to do sport nutrition um, and I didn't actually complete the degree. I, I had to, uh, I didn't pass, so I had to do some extra work and out of that I got a job in a hospital. As a dietitian, I was doing general hospital work and I was just getting really bored with it I wasn't really stimulated by it and I remember I saw my first eating disorder client in a mental health ward and I just walked away going wow that's that was so interesting um and it just it it just for me it was all about prior to that when I was working with clients it was more about telling them what to do that's the traditional dietetic model but then when I saw this person with anorexia nervosa I thought well telling them what to do is not going to be the answer here so it was more about understanding and get to know the person's story and their experience and that adds a real richness to um to the work that we do or the work that i was doing as a dietitian and um yeah from there i just fell in love with the area um started working at a private uh mental health clinic that had an eating disorder program on the gold coast and and that's been me um they've there have been a couple of times where um, I've gone away from eating disorders um, due to travel or whatever, and whenever I've come back, um, yeah, I've been lucky enough to find my way back in there. And if it wasn't for eating disorders, I wouldn't be a dietitian, I don't think. Mm. <laughs> and you, you have your own your own business now, don't you, um, Shane, in in Queensland, which focuses on eating disorders? Is that right? Yeah, so our, um, our business up here is called River Oak Health. Um, we've got psychologists, dietitians, social workers, um, and we've got, yeah, clinics around the southeast um, really aiming to, to try and help people navigate this, this, um, 
this base of eating, which which is, uh, as, as you say, Beth, it's a real spectrum from normal normal eating, so to speak, through to disordered eating and eating disorders. And I think um, these days, the nuts and bolts of it, eating is just too complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you can you help us with that, Shane? Maybe talk through that spectrum for our listeners about you know, and for us around what is it: normal eating, disordered eating, eating disorder. Yeah, well, I, I sometimes describe it to my clients. There's probably three ways I, I try and think about it. The first way I think about normal eating is a newborn. So you think about a newborn, whether on the breast or the bottle, they'll have signals that say they're hungry and they're full, and that's all they're guided by. You know, they're just guided by the, the physiology and the signs of the body, and they obviously haven't got the capacity to think. And when when babies respond to that, those normal signals are hunger and fullness, they're they usually get enough nutrition, they eat or get nutrition regularly, and there's no complicating factors. It's just the, the body's guiding that process. And then moving on a little bit further, I'll sometimes say when I'm working with um, people, at the end of treatment, I want you to be eating like a two-year-old. And they, they sort of look at me a bit puzzled. And, and, and two-year-olds are old enough to have exposure to a variety of foods but don't have the, the cognitive understanding or exposure to a lot of nutritional messages so they'll still be responding to those normal signals around hunger and fullness but if there's foods there they'll taste them if they like it they'll eat it if they like it a lot they'll eat more of it and if they don't like it they won't eat it and and it's and it's at that stage i think where eating potentially becomes complicated because we start to introduce judgment around food or judgment around the eating process that you know those uh snake lollies are unhealthy they're high in sugar so you shouldn't be eating those or you know you don't like fruit but the fact that you're not eating it we need to find a way to get you eating fruit and you know those natural processes start to become disbanded and and then i think further on to that when we get into the school system I don't think that helps either as well because if you've got a school of, say, a 1,000 children and first breaks at 10.30 and second breaks at 1 o'clock, they're not all going to be hungry for food then. And so you sort of lose that attunement to, okay, I'm hungry, but I can't eat for another hour, so I'm just going to have to park that somewhere. Um, So that disconnection from those usual body signals, I think, of hunger and fullness and what guides... The eating process is is what I consider to be normal, and where it starts trending into becoming disordered eating and eating disorder is where emotions and thinking processes start to complicate it. So I'll often say to people, if we're thinking about having a good relationship with food, we want to be thinking with food pretty much from our eyebrows down. Um, so we're trying to leave. What? It, ignore the front. <laughs> in, in, ignore the frontal lobes. That, that, that well, sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, well I, I guess what we're trying to do is is to not pay attention to the nutritional messages or, or the nutritional rules that sit with inside our brain that are often the product of marketing and um, other factors. Whereas if we go from the eyebrows down, we'll base decisions on the look of food or the smell of food or the taste of food or how we feel in our tummy. Are we hungry? Are we full? So trying to get people to reconnect back in with that more natural relationship with food that's devoid of the real cognitive over-analysis. And I think that that's really what makes food complicated is there are so many messages out there now about how we should be eating 
but I think how we should be eating is by listening to our body and and that can be difficult because our emotions play a role in that so you know there can be elements where emotions influence eating social situations can influence our eating the environment can have an influence and so it's it's really tricky trying to to navigate this process but I think the the biggest challenge is trying to help people find a place where they can trust their body again and go back to re-engaging in trusting those signals. Uh, can I just ask, Shane, um, I know there is a school of thought out there that there are some people for whom that might remain a challenge in eating disorders um, in terms of, and I certainly found that a little bit with my daughter still tends to a degree eat a little bit mechanically <laughs> um, because for whatever reason and you know and actually looking back to her babyhood um, she actually um, was a failure to thrive for a little bit there because those cues that you were talking about as a newborn uh, she would sleep for 14 hours straight and wouldn't wake up um, so with some of those so is that a little bit of for some people are there some elements of how their brain is functioning that they might not get some of those cues yeah, definitely. And I think it's a really good point you've raised, Belinda, because it's, you know, like all things with the body, not everything's going to be in tune 100% of the time and not everybody's going to be the same. So when we think about normalised eating, there is we often do it with exclamation marks because there is no definition of what normalised eating is. And I think it's trying to balance those principles we've spoken about in a way that supports people to get regular nutrition adequate nutrition a variety of food and that might involve a little bit of mechanical eating and that sort of thing as well and so normalized eating i think is is a very much an individual concept that integrates a lot of those different principles um to support but, you, but you've, come, you've come up with a kind of guide to people, haven't you, to re-establishing normal eating. And I understand that's interesting what you've said, Shane, about seeing it developmentally like that. I hadn't thought about it that before, of the loss of those cues. So say um, it maybe, maybe it's not only people with eating disorders that need to re-establish a secure sense of normal eating, but, but, but for a lot of us in our culture, is that what you are thinking? Yeah, it is. Like, you know, there's, you know, there's certainly a lot of information out there. When you look at research, 60 to 70% of people are on a diet at any particular time, which is alarming and, and certainly for me concerning, especially when we know that dieting is a major risk factor for developing an eating disorder. Um, the the uh, process that we've sort of come up with is, is called the RAVES eating model. Um, and, and the way I think about it is if you can put a tick next to each element of the Raves eating model, you, you're going to have a, a relatively robust and positive relationship with food. And we sort of think about a relationship with food in that context. So um, the Raves model is R-A-V-E-S and the R stands for regularity. So we want people to be eating on a regular basis, um, having main meals, snacks, that sort of thing across the day. We want people to be getting adequate nutrition to fuel their body, to fuel their brain, to fuel their lifestyle, whatever that may look like for them. Um, and then the other thing is variety in food is, is really important. You know, we start thinking about those, those senses we were looking at before, things like taste and um, social gatherings and, you know, there's that much variety in food available at the moment that we often say that, you know, 
food will often be divided into good and bad or healthy and unhealthy. Whereas we really try and pull that back and just say, well, food's just food. It all has a role. Um, no one food is better than another. And the reason for that is because we shouldn't be existing solely on one particular food. It's always a food coming into the mix of something much bigger than that. Um, so having variety in food where there are no foods that should be avoided um, from a health or perspective, unless there's some sort of medical diagnosis, of course. Um, so we want people to have a wide variety of foods. And then, you know, we also want people to be engaging in social eating. You know, food plays such a big role in celebrations, get-togethers, friendships, relationships. Um, so if you can eat in social situations, that's a, a real positive element in terms of connectedness and the last thing we look at is spontaneity um, which is where you can just accommodate yourself and your eating to the to the situation you find yourself in because you know life's unpredictable right so um, you might plan on having something at home for dinner but then someone rings you up and says okay we're going out to the restaurant or we're going to the movies and you can accommodate that situation okay without being fearful or worried about um what that might mean nutritionally. Absolutely. I, be, I reckon I reckon there'd be some people listening, including myself, actually. I'll just out myself here that that, that, that might be feel a bit scared about the idea that there are no foods that should be avoided, you know, like those snakes you were talking about before, you know, those sugary snakes, you know. I think people often feel scared that if they, if they listen to their intuition and they go on the excellent principles you've just um, described that they won't eat well enough. And do you find that with clients and people, that that's a fear? Yeah, yeah, there is that fear, and it's a good point. And again, I think part of it comes back to trusting the body. Uh, part of it comes back to, you know, swimming against the tide of nutritional information and dieting messages and marketing messages out there saying that there is a particular way we should be eating and there are foods that we should be avoiding. Um, but the way I tend to think about it is that just... Equally as there's no food that should be avoided, any food can be problematic if you have it in excess. Do you know what I mean? You know, the, the, one, the, the, one, the one example I always use is like baked beans or cabbage or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it doesn't really matter what food it is, is that anything in, in excess, if it's not part of a, a moderated, balanced, varied diet, has the potential to be problematic. And so the, I think the one thing that, you know, as dietitians, we've really struggled with is finding, you know, sexy messages around normalised eating because the reality is, is that, you know, food's just food and it should be eaten in moderation, irrespective of what type of food it is. Mm. It sort of goes a bit with the your body is your body, you know, too. You know, your body is your body. If when you're eating normally and exercising normally, that's your body. It's kind of, but is that a sexy message? No, <laughs> no it's a good message, <laughs> but is it a yeah, sexy yeah. one? I, I just want to share with you, um, Shane, you know, I, I can't overstate how helpful that RAVES model was for us on our journey. I, I read it quite early on in the piece and um, and I really used it as the sort of um, markers. Well, when, you know, when in family-based treatment, which is what we did, and we talked in previous episodes um, a little bit about what that looks like, but there's a part of family-based treatment where you're trying to establish independent um, eating back in the young person, and it's a really tricky part to navigate. Uh, and I found it so helpful because I'm kind of going, okay, what are the things I'm trying to 
yes, it's got it's about eating regularly. We kind of got that pretty established by the end of um, you know early phases of treatment um, and um, adequacy, but it was difficult to keep her. Uh, keep Lucy eating adequately once we started to hand back some of that independent control early on. But it was a good sort of thing for us to be watching and uh, monitoring. Um, but the, those, the other one, the variety and the eating socially and the spontaneous one, she had a real goal um, when she was unwell of being able to go at a basketball tournament of the USA. And um, it was just this thing that was just, you know, in, and we did said, and, you know, we paid it up front not knowing whether she was going to be well enough to go, so it was a bit of a gamble. Um, but we said you can only go if you can show that you can eat whenever, wherever, you know, whatever those American host families are going to serve you for breakfast because you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to be fried hash browns and whatever. You need to be able to eat McDonald's if that's where the bus tour, uh, the coach pulls into because, you know, the only one they can see on the highway between Texas and wherever else they were driving. Um, you know, you've got to be able to eat at the airport at 3am in the morning because that might be the only time you can do it. Um, you've got to eat whatever's on offer. You've got to be able to eat with the rest of the team. So we actually set her sort of, um, we tested that, you know, before. She had to kind of show us that she could do all of that before we were going to let her on that plane <laughs> uh, to go through the US. So it was it's such a simple framework, but it was a really helpful kind of basic principles that we could work to and um you know and she's still you know that's still I'm, I'm not you know she's well into recovery and doing extraordinarily well um and I don't you know she lives in a different state now so I'm really not looking at what she's doing but she um but you know is there's still a bit of me that still when she goes oh yeah just decided to go out with some friends last night we went to the pizza place and you know all of that element of eating and if I look back to the journey in the warning signs as I said before they were the she you know had some rules about which were good foods and bad foods um, leading into it she always ate plenty we never had any issues with how much she ate before she developed anorexia um, and she always ate regularly she was always the kid that took her morning tea and lunch to school every day um, but the spontaneity thing wasn't there you know uh, she was overthinking it um, a lot um, and so those sorts of things having those sorts of things in mind I know for other families they weren't seeing adequate you know eating and you know once it started to spiral I wasn't seeing adequate eating um, and I was seeing meal skipping and so it also provides a framework for the warning signs I think mm. on the way in do you find that Shane? Yeah, definitely. And, 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 you know, just like the, those principles of raves are what we move towards in terms of building a healthy relationship with food or a positive relationship with food, as they become unpacked, we're moving more towards a, a less positive or, or more problematic relationship with food. Um, and I really like the way you've captured it there because the way I think around the model is that regular eating and adequate eating you can achieve those things eating a very narrow range of foods. Um, but what happens is the variety, eating socially and spontaneity, that's where the quality of life elements really come in, you know, that social connectedness, that re-engagement in life. And so people can be following dietary rules or eating in a fairly restricted way and still get regular nutrition and adequate nutrition but we sort of feel that it's more reflective of existence rather than living because you're sort of somewhat disconnected from, from life in some ways and variety and eating socially and spontaneity really launch into that, um, that next element of um, 
of life, I suppose. Yeah, and the connectedness is so important, isn't it? Um, recently, I saw um, on um, where some people with lived experience had been asked to sort of define their experience of, of their eating disorder in one word, in fact, in a few words, and the person said, I can define it in one word, lonely. Mm. You know, and that it, because you fall out of the social fabric, don't you, when you can't eat with other people? Um, absolutely. You know, I had a story the other day about... Um a guy with an eating disorder, you know, who wasn't able to attend his best mate's wedding because he couldn't control what the food... I don't know where you were going, Beth, but I think it'd be interesting to talk about um, what are some of the sort of warning signs. How do we translate this? Yeah, into- I'm thinking too in terms of sort of, sort of triggers and warning signs, you know. What do we see? Because it's interesting too, Shane, because you're a dietitian and we've got lived experience and we have a psychologist here as well. So we've got sort of some of the multidisciplinary team that, that really help people recover as well. I'm wondering... Um, say from your, and I think you've already described this from Lucy's point of view a bit, Belinda, but from your point of view, Shane, what's the tip over, you know, um, first into disordered eating? What does disordered eating look like? And then maybe what the tip over is into this really is becoming an eating disorder that we're going to, you know, need to address um, very strongly with treatment. Yeah, it's a a really good point. And I think that, you know, in today's society, it's hard not to carry some sort of food rules around in our mind because it's, you know, we live in a diet-centric culture. Um, where I sort of think about disordered eating is is that where, where there's more over-analysis of food, more thinking about food choices, more rules guiding your eating, but in a way that doesn't necessarily have a strong negative impact on uh, your functionality of life or your ability to work or go to school, build relationships, that sort of thing. So, you know, that that's where I would probably put a lot of people who who diet um, in, in that disordered eating space because they're disconnected from body, their food choices are largely being driven cognitively um, and they're potentially not getting adequate nutrition as a result of that. Where, where the things transition over more into um, eating disorders, I think, is where daily function starts to become more compromised, health starts to become more compromised, and the the role of food is serving a, a greater function, I guess, where it might be helping with emotional states or past experiences and maybe some of those other elements where, you know, the restrictive nature of eating is is not just about health now, it, it, it's also about protection and safety and some of those other factors. Yeah, I suppose from a mental health point of view, I've seen um, the powerful mental health impact on people who are doing, say, something like what we casually call yo-yo dieting, you know, and it doesn't sound like a big thing, but in someone's life it can be an absolute devastation and a kind of paralysis that is kind of impacts on, I guess you're saying that's, that's kind of where the tipping point is in, in, in terms of how it impacts on the person. I'm, I'm just thinking of people who their health's impacted, you know, um, they're perhaps doing some eating behaviours which people would might think, yes, maybe that's an eating disorder, maybe it isn't, but, um, but it's, it's a very, very powerful impact on their social life and their, their, um, their happiness as a person, I guess, and their family life and those kinds of things. 
Yeah, and there are a lot more people doing that than there are with eating disorders. So we've described, you know, that there are around 1 million people in Australia at the moment with an eating disorder. But in a sense, they're the tip of the iceberg because the, there's an enormous number of more people who are involved in that disordered eating kind of... And that might involve excessive exercise or it might involve some purging or things like that too. Yeah, and, and I think that the, you know, the concerning thing for me as somebody who works in that eating disorder field is is that that disordered eating um which involves dieting yo-yo dieting food rules that sort of thing that's that's a very natural pathway to people into an eating disorder and so the um there's no real way of identifying if you're on a diet whether that's going to be your pathway or not and so the the most effective um way to have a, a better relationship with food and avoid these these um types of things popping up is to is to try and work towards normalised eating and incorporate those principles of raves as, as often as possible, I guess. And, and Shane, how? So when you're working with people, maybe give us an example of someone you've worked with. It might be interesting to think about an athlete. I know you work a lot with athletes. Um, you know, how might you help an athlete, for example, get back from a disordered eating or eating disorder kind of situation into a normalised um, or optimal eating pattern for them? Yeah, well, that's um, it, it's it's ch- it's a challenge, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but I think there's there's a couple of things we try and do. One is we'll try and um, stem it around that raves model, but we often find when and I often find this really really interesting is a lot of people who have disordered eating don't hold those same values and rules towards other people. So there's this dichotomy of values where as a person I need to diet or restrict intake or avoid dairy or whatever but when I'm providing food to other people they're important elements to be in to be feeding them so one of the things we'll often do is try and get people rather than me giving advice is trying to get people to connect in with their own values so would you feed another athlete the way you're feeding yourself now Um, and the response to that in 95% of times is no. And then so it raises a point, an opportunity to have a discussion. So what would you do differently? Oh, well, I'd give them more carbohydrate. I wouldn't let them go so long between eating. Um, well, so what are the benefits of doing that? And so they start arguing for the things that I want to put forward, but they're coming up with the reasonings themselves. So, so one is trying to align values um, alongside the RAVES model. And, and the other one is is helping them understand that this is going to be uncomfortable. You know, when you have food rules that guide your eating, they're there because for whatever reason, they're helping you achieve something or move in a certain direction or provide a sense of safety or, or, or something. And so as you as you start to, to challenge those rules, you start moving outside of that comfort zone. And it's a really important discussion to have because if we're working with people and we don't preempt them to this, like most people, if we feel uncomfortable, we run back to safety, right? So it's trying to hold them enough and take one step out of that discomfort to see that it's actually okay. Um, and it's it's only through that experience that you get to, to learn that alternative outcome. Whereas if you keep avoiding it, it just keeps reinforcing that there's something wrong, therefore it's bad. So it's holding people in that space just beyond comfort, one or two steps outside of it, let them see that it's okay and then keep developing that process there. But tying it to values as much as possible, I think, is really powerful because 
that's inherent in them and, and they'll always carry that moving forward. As we all do, as we all can connect to our values and figure out our own eating and our own body as well. I think, again, body image fits into that as well of what, what do I value about my life, about my body, about my moving, about my connecting to other people. So reconnecting to that. I really like what you've both said. I think this, you know, about that sort of over-cognitive kind of um, over-complication, I guess, of, of some of these areas. But I suppose for me it's a characterising um, aspect of when people are deep into an eating disorder, the kind of preoccupation and the amount of mental activity that goes on with eating disorders and part of coming out of that is is kind of moving away from that. So regular eating and normalising your eating is a big part of that because the brain operates differently, right, um, when, it's, when it's getting enough nutrition. And that's the other thing, that if you're restricting your eating, and it doesn't have to be all day every day, you know, if you're restricting your eating for periods, your brain changes and your brain does become, I think, more obsessive and more compulsive. We know that from research, don't we? Um, yeah, yeah definitely. So, and I, I think one of the things that I found really intriguing, um, at times a bit shocking, um, was Lucy on her journey um, actually picking apart what some of these, that eating was in some ways a much more complicated activity than I had ever experienced it as. I'm a fairly... I don't spend too much time on uh, food as a general percentage of my day, you know, thinking about it, planning for it, etc. Um, so I, I struggled to sort of empathise with sort of Lucy's utter preoccupation with it. But some of the activities, like, you know, we thought she was just doing really, really well and we let her go to the shops one day we'd gone away for a weekend and she, I said, no, we've run out of this, that and the other, you'll need to go up to the supermarket. And she hadn't been supermarket shopping in the whole time that... Uh, since she got unwell and I got this call from the middle of the supermarket where she was just having a sort of a meltdown because suddenly all of these foods and all of these things were just completely overwhelming, you know, she suddenly found the whole... Um, I'm just, I guess I'm just interested, it's been interesting to me to watch how, you know, we've had to be really supportive and I guess my message in there for listeners is, you know, this can be really difficult activity for people and they do need support you know you can't just say this is what normalized eating looks like go away and do it um you know you may need families or supports around them to take up parts of those activities until that person feels completely comfortable to do all of them themselves um uh, yeah because you know i do think it it's quite a difficult act. Once someone's really tipped over into an eating disorder, it's a really difficult set of activities to reintroduce. <laughs> yeah, we have to be focused and patient and and also I think um, it's important not to forget the psychological aspects of the intense fear of doing this too and, the, um, as I say, the kind of cognitive overload that happens in people's brains while they're doing it too, so they really need support through that as well. So the, is there anything, Shane, just that you would ask? Uh, if you were a generalist clinician out there that um, something the client has said or something's tipping, you know, prickling your instinct that there might be something going on here, is there any... How do you ask people, if, if they haven't come to you about an eating disorder, I don't know if you see those, those people anymore, um, how do you start that conversation about their eating? Yeah, it's, it's good. There's, um, there's a, a screening questionnaire that I quite like that I think is often underused. Um, it's, it's, it's got five questions in it, but it can't, they, they've sort of looked at two key questions in order to rule out the risk of an eating disorder. And, and one is... Um, does your eating affect the way you feel about yourself? 
and you know does your body image and your weight affect how you feel about yourself and i think they're quite neutral questions um and i often include them when i do presentations and sometimes the feedback will be well if we ask if we asked everybody we see those questions we'd end up with everybody which which i don't think is a bad thing because it gives you an opportunity to explore it a little bit further um the the other things we look at is any um like intentional weight loss changes in eating patterns um changes in diet that sort of thing um are people spending more time thinking about food and and or weight um are probably the the main things we we probably tend to look at and as they get i guess a little bit deeper into disordered eating um looking at their social contact because we tend to find as people drift further into disordered eating into eating disorders there tends to be a reduction in um social connectedness as well so someone may be avoiding social events for um sort of for food related reasons or because they're they're feeling more disconnected yeah well it it could be because of food reasons and it could be for some of the reasons Mm. Beth spoke about because if people aren't getting enough nutrition then people do become a little bit more rigid a little bit more anxious Mm. and those sort of things and therefore that could create discomfort in those situations that socially they were okay with before yeah i I think um interestingly the national institute for clinical excellence guidelines the international guidelines talking about the assessment of eating disorders or the screening for eating disorders say that the the most important screening tool is the clinician thinking about the possibility that this could be an eating disorder which is an interesting one isn't it and then it spills into those um kind i think questions that you're talking about um shane sort of it's just to introduce the topic isn't it and there are a number of um screening tools and we'll put some of those on the landing page for listeners to be able to have a look at as well but moving into the territory with the person rather than not which sometimes dietitians always have to talk about food mental health professionals don't <laughs> and sometimes you know it can feel as if it's a little bit outside the paddock you know um, for people so so that's an important one yeah thank you so much Shane for the insights that you've given us you've given a real rich understanding I think of normal eating and also alerted us to the excellent tool that you've developed and but also a sense of what it's like for people and how you might clinically work with someone you know towards being able to get back even from an eating disorder sort of um, situation so really grateful for your for your time no worries and um, anything anything else you'd like to say before you go Shane anything on your mind nothing I can think of other than to say you know i think the key is uncomplicating food you know just 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 keeping it simple um yeah that's probably the main message but it's yeah it's been it's been great chatting with you guys good to catch up and um yeah i've I've had a great time thanks all right see you again shane thank you what do you reckon belinda i reckon we're we're pulling up at the last stop here yeah I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this final episode of Eating Disorders Beyond the Unknown, and I hope we have moved somewhat beyond the unknown. Over the series, we've unpacked some of those myths and stigmas associated with eating disorders. Then we've drilled down in episodes two and three into some specifics about diagnoses. And we've talked today about healthy eating and what that relationship is between healthy eating and eating disorders. And we've looked at those issues, as I've said, through three kind of lenses, the lens of research, the lens of lived experience and the lens of clinical experience. It's been um, great, Belinda, thank you. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to do this together. I'm wondering if you, like, 
if there's something that you'd like to end with, like a key message, especially perhaps to the listeners? I think a key message is be alert to eating disorders. Um, if you're seeing people with anxiety, depression, be alert to it. Um, if a parent or a carer ever raises a concern with you as a clinician, take it seriously. We have evidence that that is highly predictive of the existence of an eating disorder. We, I guess my passion really is about how we get early intervention happening with eating disorders. That's just so key to making a huge difference in, in our field. Um, so the more people who can be alert to it, be confident to have a conversation, you know, um, and that raise it, I think that's a key one for me. What would yours be, Beth? It actually leads on really strongly from what you've just said, Belinda, because I think um, I'd really like people to understand that people with an eating disorder need a response right throughout the whole system of care. So that means primary health and it means all health and mental health services because others we can't get the early intervention you're talking about. If we wait until people are sick enough where they have to turn up to an eating disorder specific service, which are an incredibly important part of the system of care as well, they're already pretty sick. So we really need people to be doing that work of kind of early identification, first response and referral everywhere in the health and mental health system. So that's a real strong one. I have two though. The other one is um, really want to invite treatment providers into doing this as part of your work. Um, you know, I hope you've had a bit of a sense from myself and from Shane um, what rewarding and interesting and, and fulfilling work this can be. And also you can make a huge difference. So eating disorders are on the rise and we really need providers and we are in a, in a workforce crisis. And so many clinicians have got existing skill sets that are just so valuable if with, you know, with a bit more training um, and information. And, you know, I think eating disorders used to have a bit of a stereotype that they, you know, you couldn't do much with them. Um, and it's quite the opposite now. People get a lot of, you know, reward from you know, making a huge difference with people with eating disorders. Exactly. And we've, we've come a long way in terms of defining what training people need, mental health professionals need. We've got credentialing on the way and we've got training opportunities on the way. So, And you don't have to do a massive amount of work in order to learn a treatment model and be able to be a treatment provider. So we'd just really um, encourage you to do that. Just do a bit of extra training, use what you know, and Bob's your uncle. You know, you can do that and make that difference. So, yeah. I think that's um, that's it. Well, it's. I think it's. Uh, if you want to learn more about us, your co-hosts, um, or the organisations that we represent, so that's NEDC, MHPN, and EDV, or our guest today, Shane Jeffrey, and the materials he talked about, including the Raves model, or you'd like more information or to access resources, follow the links on this episode's landing page. You can also come to the websites of our organisations as well. So that's National Eating Disorder Collaboration and Eating Disorders Victoria. On the webpage, you'll also find a link to the feedback survey and uh, we'd value your feedback. Thank you for joining us today and across the series, <clears throat> Eating Disorders Beyond the Unknown. We really value your engagement and we know that working together, we can achieve better outcomes for people living with eating disorders. So it's goodbye from me, Beth. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks, Belinda. It's been a privilege. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mental Health in Focus. Stay tuned for more episodes by hitting that subscribe button. And while you're there, don't forget to leave us a rating.